0: How are you doing? I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falking Around podcast, another version for you. Good to have you on board again. We are still in pandemic state, so I'm still broadcasting from home. And, you know, soon we'll be back at our nice little studio, going to have some guests. I'm very much looking forward to that, getting back to doing things the way we had intended to do them when we started the podcast a few months ago. But it's been fun going through this time because instead of talking about sports that are actually being played, which I can't wait to do that, don't get me wrong, it's interesting looking at sports from a little bit of a different angle, a little bit of an analytical angle, if you will. And and, and that's kind of how my brain works anyway. I like to look at the big picture and break things down and see what theories I can come up with and think this might happen I think a lot of that is pertaining to where we are with sports. You know, the Michael Jordan last dance is a great opportunity to to think about things as they were, as they could have been, as they would be. There's also the draft, which is an analytical thing where you approach that and try to figure out team building. And I think the NFL schedule is something also that's analytical in nature as a fan. And that's where I want to start today, was with the NFL schedule and as it pertains to the primetime Bills, as they have changed their Twitter handle. The Buffalo Bills give four primetime games. Remember last year when the schedule came out, the Bills were the only team to not have any primetime games. They did have the four o'clock game on Thanksgiving that they went down to Dallas and played the Cowboys. So That's a national game, but not a primetime game. It's big audience, big opportunity for the players to be seen, but still a little bit different. Of course, they did get flexed and played in Pittsburgh on a Sunday night and Sunday night football. And I think the fact that those two games, and we talked about this last week, those two games, they went down to Dallas and and kicked the crap out of the Cowboys. They went to Pittsburgh and handled and beat the Steelers handily in the second half down there. And then what they did in the playoffs, even though they lost the game, that that it's still really not sure how they lost that game. You really can't lose that game when you look at it, but whatever they lost, but the way they played and the ability that they show to compete against the better teams and the fact that they're a pretty entertaining team. Josh Allen is a guy that can make, every throw, and I mean both good and bad. He's also somebody who will try to lateral to a teammate while going to the ground with a minute and a half left. There's the train wreck of sorts approach with Josh Allen where you want to watch what he's going to do. I'm confident Allen is going to take a step forward again this year. Did so last year in a big way. Another step forward this year is going to be necessary. Right now, and this sounds funny, that you know the Bills. I mentioned the four primetime games. The biggest question mark going into this season for the Buffalo Bills is Josh Allen, and if Allen holds up his end of the bargain, we're talking about another playoff team. And you look at this schedule, and it's difficult. There are a lot of parts of this schedule that are not going to play favorably. But before we get into the the schedule, it's it's interesting because the Bills. Scheduled this year, they play both West divisions. They play the NFC West and they play the AFC West, which means there's a lot of travel. They will take five, five West coast trips, Denver and Arizona included in that West coast area. When you think about that and you think about travel miles and the way NFL teams handle it, I was surprised. Warren sharp is a, is a very sharp guy when it comes to football. He Taught me something with this sound clip.
1: Uh, what about the notion of travel miles? We always hear all these people talking about, oh, this team has the most travel miles. You have a cautionary note about that. Yeah, because um, nowadays, it's probably happened the last couple of years, uh, teams are allowed to request from the schedule makers that if they do have to play a couple of teams in the same location, like whether they're going to the East Coast or whether they're going to the West Coast, that they want to be able to play those games back-to-back so they don't have to come all the way back across the country. And a number of teams have actually requested that of the league, and the league has granted it, I think, almost in every single one of the cases. So there's a number of teams, but a couple of examples – occur between week two and three, a team like the Rams comes out east, a team like the 49ers comes out east, they're playing back-to-back opponents in one case, they're playing at the same exact stadium, they play the Giants and the Jets in back-to-back weeks, the two teams share a stadium, so they're just staying out on the east coast, so if you're looking at data and numbers, just like looking at travel miles of where a team's located, where their opponents are, and just doing the math on that, that's not always going to account for the way that these teams are scheduling their travel. Wait, Warren, teams can request that? I have never heard that before. Yes. That's true? Yep, teams, it's 100% true. Teams are able to request that now, and the league has wow. is pretty much granting it. And uh, so there's been teams from the East Coast that have to go to the West Coast and play a couple of teams out there, like including the Seahawks, that this season are being allowed to do those in back-to-back weeks and stay out West. So um, it's, it's right. definitely a thing that's started to happen,
0: yeah. Oh. That's something I had never known. I never knew teams could request that when they play West Coast teams that they could back-to-back them and stay there. And it makes a lot of sense. Look, the NFL's a business. We we know that all the time. We talk about finances and money and all the things that go along with that. The NFL is certainly going to do whatever it can to save money. But I don't think, in this case, it's about travel cost. I think it's much more about being acclimated to the West Coast. We always hear about the West Coast teams coming east, and when they come east, they've got to wake up early for that 1 o'clock start time and how much of an advantage it is to the home team to do so. Well, taking that advantage out of the way by staying in different places for that time is is a big deal, and the Bills chose not to do that. They were one of the teams that did not choose to go back-to-back on the West Coast. And while they have five West Coast trips, they're not going back-to-back. They play the Raiders in Week 5. Now, the week before that, they're at home against the Rams. Week 4, I'm sorry. And then in Week 5, they go to Tennessee. So, a lot of travel there, but not back-to-back. They then go out West again to Arizona. The week before that, they're at home against Seattle. And the week after is a bye week. So, That won't be a big deal. They then go in early December out to San Francisco to play the 49ers. And in mid-December, two weeks later, they go to Denver. So there's a lot of travel in this schedule. Five teams, as I say, they have to play out west. But I don't think that's a big deal. I, I don't think the travel's the problem with the schedule. I think it's the quality of the opponents. There are seven games against teams that are below 500 or were below 500 last year. Of course, the Jets and Dolphins make up four of those seven. That means you start to look at the rest of the schedule. There are five playoff teams on this schedule, and the Pats, they play twice. That's six games against playoff teams from last year. You add to that teams that didn't make it, like the Rams, as I mentioned who are a very formidable opponent. You throw in Arizona, an up-and-coming team, and you know maybe a different team to prepare for. The Steelers, certainly, if Ben Roethlisberger is right, the Steelers are at worst a playoff team because they've got a great roster outside of the quarterback position, and they have a great quarterback in Ben Roethlisberger. We just, at this point, don't have any idea what to expect from Ben. So the schedule broken down into quarters and that's how we always look at things and you got to go three and one in each quarter to end up 12 and four which a lot of people have predicted the bills to be now the bills vegas over under number is around nine or nine and a half depending on where you get that what that means is vegas is propping you to bet whether you think they'll win more or less than nine or nine and a half games in other words if you think the bills are going to win 10 games you'd bet the over You think the Bills are going to win eight games. You'd bet the under. And I think that's right where I would expect them to be. This schedule is going to be very difficult. You know, a home game against Kansas City on a Thursday night at New Era Field. Now, we don't know if the fans will be there. We don't know what to expect with that. But you talk about a loud, great atmosphere. That's going to be fantastic. Two home night games. That game is at home, and they also... Play against the Patriots and a home game. I'm sorry, they don't play against the Patriots. The Steelers on a home game on Sunday Night Football. It's it's great to see the Bills get this exposure, and for Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, the job they've done since they came in, basically getting rid of Doug Whaley's people, cleaning out the front office, doing everything over. And getting a roster that's now to the point where they're ready to compete is great. But there's one thing that comes along with this and with this schedule that's going to play out this year, and we'll see how the Bills handle. It's a young team in so many areas and so many key areas. Tremaine Edmonds, Josh Allen, both entering their third season are the leaders of the offense and defense, respectively. A lot of pressure on those young men, and young is the key word. The thing is, there are expectations now. And the Bills, if they don't win the AFC East, this season goes down as a disappointment. I can't believe I'm saying that, and we're still in May, and who knows, we got to go through training camp, if there's a training camp, and go through to get to the season with what we think the rosters are going to look like now. There's always injuries, there's always surprise things that happen, so we never know. But as we look at it now, if the Bills don't win the AFC East with New England having lost Tom Brady, Jared Stidham being the guy, this is a colossal disappointment. If this team doesn't win 10 games, it's a colossal disappointment. That's not been said in Buffalo since the early to mid 90s. And that's what's crazy about this turnaround that McDermott and Bean have orchestrated. And I think it's great. I really do. I love the fact that there's expectations now. And they've built something, not just for this year. They've built something to sustain. They've drafted the depth that they need. The defensive line was getting a little bit older the last two years. They go out and spend first-round pick on Ed Oliver. This year, their first pick on A.J. Bonanza. There's depth being brought in. They, they bring in last year. Cody Ford is the second round pick to that offensive line. Keep that a little bit younger. They bring in Stefan Diggs, who's a true number one. They've done the job that they've needed to do, building depth on this team. And that's what's created the expectations. The pressure is going to be there. And teams no longer are going to come into Buffalo and think, uh, same old Bills. No, they're going to be ready to play. We're going to find out real quick, week three, What this team's about, because when they open up against the Jets, the Jets are a team that I think is similar to the Bills, but a year behind the Bills. I think Joe Douglas is going to get it right. A lot of it obviously depends on Sam Darnold. I also have very little confidence in Adam Gase. Adam Gase, to me, has to go for the Jets to take off. And Sam Darnold is the guy who's either going to make or break Adam Gase. This year's a big year. For Sam Darnold. But Jets and then at Miami. Dolphins. I've talked a lot about them leading up to the draft. I love what Brian Flores has got going down there. They have really improved that talent level of that team. Two is going to make a big difference eventually. I would expect Fitz to be the starter week two. But you never know. This day and age of the NFL. You don't draft quarterbacks to have them sit. But week three, the Rams come in. And this is a team with a great passing attack. Now, they don't have Todd Gurley, and I always felt that what made the Rams great was the ability to both run and pass. And without Gurley, I don't know if they're going to be as good in the running game or have as much confidence. And I'm still not sold on Jared Goff being a guy. I know he can throw it, and I know he's had some huge numbers in games, but I'd much rather have Jared Goff throwing 25 times, a running back getting it 20 times, than a running back getting it ten times and Jared Goff throwing it thirty-five. I have much more confidence that way. But that's where we're going to see the Bills really tested in my opinion. And we'll see how things go. So the schedule's out, it's a lot of fun to look at, but there's a lot of things to go on before that. And you know the first thing is training camp. Training camp always takes place here in Rochester at St. John Fisher. And the contract to hold that here is through twenty twenty one. The Bills have a phenomenal facility next to the stadium in Buffalo. They've built this ad pro sports facility. It's one of the state-of-the-art and best-in-the-league training facilities. They've also bought fields around or built fields around it. The training camp will be in Buffalo after they stop using St. John Fisher. In my opinion, and this is just me hypothesizing, the way things are working there won't be a training camp at St. John Fisher this year. I don't know what type of training camp there will be. I don't know what type of preseason there will be. We heck, we don't know what type of season, but I do believe the last training camp at St. John Fisher happened last year in 2019. It now goes forward and we'll see how it ends up for the Pagoulas and the Bills taking place in Buffalo. They, they made a lot of, friends here in Rochester by regionalizing the franchise bringing people from Syracuse in and allowing things but I think it's something that's gone by so certainly a lot to look forward to and one other thing Larry Warford is a guard who was released this week by the New Orleans Saints the Saints drafted a kid out of Michigan in the first round, to he's a center guard. He'll likely start at center, and they might kick somebody to guard, making Woodford and his $7 million-a-year salary somewhat expendable. Guy was in the last year of his contract, easy to cut him without too much of a dead cap hit. If the Bills really want to compete this year, and I do believe they do, and the talk is to compete while you still got your rookie quarterback on his rookie deal, which Josh Allen's in year three, You have two more years of that rookie deal before it kicks up in the fifth-year option, and then from there, of course, really kicks up. So now is the time. If you're dead set on winning, you have a chance to go get a Pro Bowl guard for nothing more than money. You've got decent play at guards with Quentin Spain, who you re up this year, John Feliciano, who played well at times last year and is a good locker room guy. But Warford's different. Warford's one of the better guards in the NFL. If you have a chance to go get him for just money and you really want to win, go get him. The one reason the Bills shouldn't try to sign Larry Warford is this. If they're not confident in Cody Ford at right tackle and they don't believe that Cody Ford can handle things at right tackle, then you go get. You don't go get him because if if Ford can't handle right tackle, you kick him inside the guard. You spend a second-round pick on this guy, you got to get something out of him. They've got depth with Ty Insecki at right tackle, played well at times last year. It's going to be interesting to watch how this plays out. And here's maybe another reason. I mentioned the Jets. The Jets are a year behind the Bills. One of the biggest areas of needs for the Jets is offensive line. If Larry Warford goes to the Jets, that's another good piece to the offensive line for the Jets. I'm not saying you sign Warford to keep him away from the Jets because you're probably not worried about that or even the Patriots for that matter. But you have a chance to get somebody who certainly could help your opponents. I think Brandon Bean should make that call. So certainly a lot to look forward to with the NFL schedule. And I'm hopeful that that NFL schedule takes place the way it's written. We're all hopeful of that. I'm not confident it's going to start on time, but likely it will with no fans. And one thing before we move on, looking at the Green Bay Packers balance sheet over the last couple of years gives you an idea of how much the fans add to the profit margin for the Packers. The Packers, their revenues last year were somewhere in the neighborhood of four hundred and seventy million dollars. 270 million of that came from television contracts and revenue sharing. The other 230 million that they declared, or whatever it was, came from local interests. That's fans, signage, advertising, all the in game things that they do, jersey sales, all those things in the stadium go to helping them, concessions. That's about 45% of the revenue coming from fan experience. So if there is no fan experience this year at NFL games, teams will lose 45% of the revenue on rough estimate. I do believe that figure, 200 plus million dollars per team is going to get the NFL a way to figure out how to successfully hold the season with fans in attendance. Maybe not initially and maybe not traditionally, but I think they will find places to play that will allow the fans in, in teams that don't live in States that won't allow it. The California teams, for example, they might be playing in Vegas or in Dallas or in other areas that fans are allowed in. There's too much money on the table for that not to happen. And it's a few months down the road. So I think there's a possibility that can happen. Let's move on to the last dance. And, you know, this is the television event of, I don't know, I'd say the decade, but this decade just started and it's off to the shittiest start of all time. So I don't think we should go with the greatest television event of the decade. But in decades, maybe. The last dance, maybe it's because we have nothing else to watch. But this is so riveting. And and in so many ways is it riveting. From Michael Jordan this week, and, and we're not – Look, if you followed Michael Jordan, if you watched him play, if you were old enough to follow him and read about him and know about him as his career went on, there have been very few surprises from this documentary. You're just hearing more confirmation than anything else. And that's kind of where I am with this documentary. I've known most of the things. I didn't know about Rodman going out to Vegas or Rodman banging Carmen Electra at mid-court of the practice facility. That was newsworthy. But I did know a lot of the other things, the Jordan punching Steve Kerr. We heard both Kerr and Jordan talk about that and Phil Jackson talking about that. You know, last week I said, what would Twitter do? WWTD. And think about how LeBron is criticized so many ways. When Jordan came back, I, I, this one play, I thought, oh my God, if this was LeBron James, Twitter and Skip Bayless's head would literally have exploded. When Jordan came back, one of the deciding plays in the playoff loss when the team was eliminated that year, it was a 94-95 season, Jordan, on a last shot, had his man beat pulled up from the free throw line, almost similar to the way he beat Craig Elo in the Cavs, and dished a pass to Pippen who was cutting to the hole ball went out of bounds. He didn't take the shot. And all I could think of was how many times has LeBron James been crucified for not taking the shot when in fact, making the correct basketball play is what he did. You know, Michael Jordan, had great luck, not great luck. I don't want to say luck. The results were great. When Michael Jordan hits Paxton, Kerr, whoever the case may be, Craig Hodges, they made the shots. Those shots don't always go in, but it seemed with MJ they did. And that gave him, I don't want to say the benefit of the doubt, but it helped him perception-wise very much. So it's it's interesting to watch that part of it. But MJ in this episode was very emotional. And two things made MJ emotional. One was the death of his father and you know anyone if you're an unlucky member of that club where you've lost your dad and I certainly am, it is the worst club to join in the world. And the way look, it doesn't matter. You lose your dad, it's horrible. But to have your father murdered, to have your father murdered and then people writing that you're in some way involved, your nefarious behavior is potentially a cause of that. I, I, I don't know how you could handle that. And, and MJ didn't handle it well. You know, let's face it. His, his re- reaction to that was I'm going to play baseball. And, that was real emotional. And, and when they won the championship, when he came back on father's day and the video of him laying on the training room floor, just sobbing, holding the ball. I was like, I've never seen that video before. And I'd heard about that, but to see and to hear it as real as that was, it's just amazing. And, and, and again, if you've lost a parent and I hope, None of you have, because it sucks. And for MJ to go through that in somewhat the public eye, crazy. But that was one of two things that got him emotional. The other thing that got him emotional was the perception that he was hard on his teammates and that he was a dick to his teammates. And he was a dick to his teammates. And that really bothered him. And he got choked up talking about that. That blew my mind because, you know, through this whole thing, he's impervious to emotion. But those two things really got him. And that's where I was really surprised about the emotion and what it meant for him. There was more disrespect, Jordan. You know, and and I thought this was – this is going to be the underlying takeaway of this. If If somebody challenges M.J., then he's going to rip your heart out. And the Bradford Smith story told by David Aldridge, which was a phenomenal story. LeBradford Smith was a rookie with the Washington, I think they were the Bullets at the time. I don't think they were the Wizards yet. And came in to play against the Bulls and then had a night. MJ didn't have a good night. And LeBradford Smith went for 37. MJ told people after the game and the teams were then flying back to Washington to play the next night in D.C. And told them MJ told his teammates that guy told me nice game after the game wait till I get him tomorrow night MJ had 36 in the first half the next night Bradford Smith never never had more than 20 again in the NBA and MJ like ruined this dude just ruined him Because he said, nice game. As it turns out, he never said, nice game. MJ made it up. He just did something to get himself going. George Carl, when the Sonics were playing against the Bulls in the championship series, was in a restaurant. George Carl's Carolina guy. MJ, of course, Carolina guy. They go way back. George Carl didn't talk to him. Didn't say hello to him. MJ used that as a slight. But I think the best is what says the most is when this was a 3-0 series, Sonics and the Bulls, and the Sonics team is a good team. Gary Payton was really good. Sean Kemp at the time wasn't fat, and still a mystery about Sean Kemp. Sean Kemp was out of the league because he had a big cocaine problem. But somehow he gained like 50 pounds. How do you gain weight? When you're an NBA basketball player running all day and you're doing blow as a second job, how does that happen that you gain weight? Have you ever seen a fat crackhead? Me neither. But, yet yeah, Sean Kemp somehow pulled it off. But anyway, that's a tangent that I, I have to go down every time I talk about Sean Kemp because it still blows my mind. But Gary Payton didn't cover Jordan in the first three games. Games four and five, he did. And the Sonics won. And Gary Payton, if you'll hear this clip, will tell you he had Jordan all figured out.
2: A lot of people backed down the bike. I didn't. I made it a point. I said, just tire him out. Tired the f out of him. you. Just gotta tire him out. And I kept hitting him and banging him and hitting him and banging him. It took a toll on Mike. It took a toll. And then. <laughs> uh, Phil, somebody- Resting him a little bit, and then the the, the series changed and I wish I could have did it earlier. I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but it 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 was a difference <laughs> and, and, and beating him down a little bit the glove I had no problem with the glove
0: I had no problem with Gary Payton. <laughs> I don't know what the greatest trash talk moment in history is, but that right there is as good as any of them. MJ belly laughing over Gary Payton telling the world that he had MJ figured out. That's amazing to me. Jordan still, to this day, is going to take everybody he can to school. It's pretty wild. And then, of course, he got into MJ going to play baseball. And, you know, when Jordan played baseball, he was very much criticized for his baseball ability. But, you know, we heard in this from guys like Terry Francona, who's one of the best, if not the best manager in baseball. Jordan had major league potential and it. You know, you think about it. The guy was 31 years old. He started at double A. Double A is a legitimate prospect level. Guys at double A can play. They're guys who have a chance to make it to the bigs. Jordan hit 200. You haven't played baseball in 14 years and you hit 200 and double a 51 RBIs, 30 stolen bases. It was really impressive what he was doing. And then baseball went on a strike. So he came back and, you know, in typical MJ fashion, the press release, I'm back. And Coming back and dropping 55 a couple nights into his comeback at Madison Square Garden was the most MJ thing ever. And it was, it was wild to see how that transpired. And then the other thing that came out this week that I thought was great was Space Jam. When MJ filmed that, and I had heard a lot of stories about this, that they built what they called the Jordan Dome. So, after filming was done for the day, MJ could go get his work in and had a full-size court, and guys in LA would show up, and they had great runs. It was an NBA game with some D1 college players mixed in, and they were talking about the players that showed up, you know this guy, Reggie Miller, was there, and this guy was there, and this guy, and then they said it's Sean Bradley, and wait, what? Sean Bradley. How the hell did Sean Bradley get in that run? Sean Bradley? You know, you're talking about legendary games that none of us saw in the trash talking, the way things went, and all the. Sean Bradley. It just blew my mind. Like, all right, it was all good until Sean Bradley showed up. I got to throw this in too, because it's something that I've always talked about, and, and you know, people look at. The 95 96 Bulls as the greatest team of all time because they won 72 games and they went on to win the championship. Of course, Golden State won more than 72. I think it was 73 or 74 and didn't win the championship. So, no, they're out of the conversation. If you don't win the championship, you're not in the conversation. The greatest teams, just the way it is, it's rules. You can look that up. I'm sure it's written down somewhere. Maybe it's a baseball unwritten rule. Either way, Bulls, 72-10, win the championship. There was expansion that year. Two teams had come in that year. So the league was watered down a little bit because of the expansion. There was also expansion just seven years earlier with two other teams coming in seven years earlier. So in four years, you added four teams. That's 48 to 60 guys who weren't in the league prior to that. So the talent overall was somewhat watered down. I always like to point this out, too, when you talk about that team and the talent. The European invasion didn't really happen until the early 2000s. Now, there were players, and the first guy I always point to is Detlef Schrempf. Schrempf came from Germany, went to the University of Washington, was drafted into the NBA, and was a really good player for a long time. And you had other players show up and and, and make – Notice, I remember Drazen Petrovic, when he came from Portland to New Jersey and got a chance to play. He was a great player, died very tragically in a car accident on the Autobahn in Germany. But the European invasion hadn't happened. You had some big guys coming over, and that was, you know, where you'd find European players mostly. But how about this stat? to To show you how few European players were in the league— I went through and looked at rosters. In 95-96, there were 16 European players in the NBA. 16. Think about this. Last season, in the Eastern Conference, there were 48 European players on teams in the Eastern Conference. 16 in the NBA in 95-96. 48 in the Eastern Conference... Last season, 92 overall. The European imports have made the game much better and the talent base much deeper. You know, it's, it's a similar argument to when you look at Major League Baseball back before Jackie Robinson. You know, A lot of the great players were playing in the Negro Leagues. They weren't allowed to play in Major League Baseball. You didn't have the Latin players. You didn't have the African Americans allowed in. You only had white guys. It wasn't as competitive as it is now. And I'm not saying guys who played back then couldn't play now. It's different. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when you base, when you look at how teams fared, a dominant team would likely not be as dominant now or even in other years simply because the talent base was much more watered down than it is now. So as great as those Bulls teams were, let's not get overly excited when we talk about the best team ever. It's not the best team ever. It really isn't. So Last Dance, unfortunately, wraps up this Sunday, and uh, can't wait to watch more, and I wish it was going on for a couple more weeks because it has been absolutely fantastic, and I've loved every single minute of it. Shifting gears to a guy who I think is one of the more notorious players to go from college to the nba in recent years zion williamson a lawsuit filed by his former agent against his current agent and against zion alleges sit down i know this is going to be shocking that zion received benefits from duke or from people representing duke to play college basketball there look there's a lot of talk about college basketball and what to do with things but i first want you to hear pat mcafee talk about this lawsuit with zion williamson
2: zion's former marketing agent claims zion received illegal benefits to attend duke she said she'll drop her case against zion in which she's asking for 100 million dollars if he comes out and admits the fact that Adidas, Nike, among other people were giving him benefits to attend Duke and that the Duke folks knew about it. She also is asking for his uh, stepfather and mom to come out and say all these things. This could be, though, the downfall of collegiate hoops as we know it. We already know three of the top basketball recruits are going to the G League this year. They're going to make anywhere from three hundred to 500000 minus shoe deals and outside advertising deals that they couldn't have made in college hoops. But now that they're going to invest Duke, which means they're going to investigate UNC, which means they're going to investigate everybody else. This could potentially be the collapse of collegiate basketball as we know it.
0: Yeah, so Pat McAfee points out too, you land Zion. How do you lose him? I mean, that's a dream client. Think about this. Zion... Last year, signed contracts, $100 million deal with Nike, $50 million with Gatorade, probably signed $200 million worth of endorsement deals. If you're an agent who gets 10%, 20%, let's say 10, just lost $20 million. No wonder you're suing them. It's, it's funny looking at this because Zion and his parents may have gotten benefits from Duke. And would anyone be shocked by that? Would anyone be surprised? if you've not seen the scheme on hbo it's a documentary about this guy christian dawkins who was a middleman between a sneaker company and college basketball players and coaches christian dawkins was the target of a federal investigation as the fbi spent tens of millions of dollars to try to find wrongdoing and correct wrongdoing in college basketball they found one guy and they followed that thread and pulled the thread and got four college assistant coaches to be arrested and charged and sentenced in some way. It was a, an Adidas to college basketball coaches line that they were following. So if you're telling me that things that happened at Kansas or Arizona or Louisville only had to do with Adidas and Nike didn't do anything about it, didn't do anything illegal, And you actually believe that to be true, that it's only Adidas. I've got some great land for you in the Everglades that I think can be turned around and made into a great resort. And we will talk price on that because you are a fool. You are an absolute moron if you don't think this is rampant among all college sneaker companies, colleges and sneaker companies. I don't care if it's Under Armour, Puma, Nike, Adidas, whoever. It's all the same. And they're all doing things to get young kids, whether it be through AAU sponsorships, whether it be directly paying parents, as alleged here, whatever the case may be, this has gone on for a long time and will continue to go on as long as there are billions of dollars at stake. And there are billions of dollars at stake. And a guy like Zion, it's funny when you look at Zion as – You know, he's the guy who's not getting paid to play college basketball, right? He's the guy, the system's broke because how is it Duke can make so much money off Zion Williamson? The NCAA can make so much money and doesn't get any of it. Well, first off, if Zion didn't go to Duke for one year, what we would have known going into the NBA when he signed his endorsement deals was that Zion Williamson is a spectacular dunker. We all saw the YouTube videos of him. We all saw this chubby kid from New York or from South Carolina who who, he has great ability, but can he play? I don't know, but he's fun to watch. He would have gotten endorsement deals. Don't get me wrong. Probably would have got eight, $10 million, but instead he went to Duke. He showed great skills. He blew out a sneaker and he got $200 million roughly in endorsement deals. Think a a year of college basketball didn't work for Zion Williamson. Don't tell me the system's broke for guys like him. The system actually works better for Zion than it does for the middle people. The system works great, like it's like anything else in this country. It works great for the people at the high end and works great for the people at the low end. The guys at the end of the bench, they get a free degree. They get to make contacts and go on with their life in whatever their chosen profession is. Guy at the high end, get they get exposure get an opportunity to go to the league and make tens of millions of dollars guys in the middle. They're the ones that really don't get a whole lot. And they're the ones that the system is broken for. So how do you fix it? Well, Zion and Duke are an example of why the one and done has to go away. Do I believe that Duke has done everything the same as Kansas and the same as Louisville and the same as Arizona three big, Power five schools that have been served with notice of allegations from the NCAA. Yeah, I do. Now I know Duke put together an investigation from an outside agency and they've cleared themselves, which that's fantastic. Because it took the FBI tens of millions of dollars and years to do basically nothing with their investigation. Whoever the outside agency that Duke used, they should like run the FBI's division of college basketball investigating because they would have saved tens of millions of dollars, got it done quickly. But it's the arrogance of Duke and Mike Shashevsky's perception that has people salivating about this story. Coach K is a good man as we are perceived him to be. He is somebody, though, I feel as much different than we perceive him. Coach K not the kind, gentle soul on the sideline you might think. And frankly, nobody should be. If you're a college basketball coach, you're going to say some things, do some things that you don't want a whole lot of people to hear. The way you would talk to referees, the way you talk to players. I'm sure there are times every coach has crossed lines in the way they speak and have been forced to deal with that. Coach K is no different. He's an F-bomb machine during games. He's somebody who is perceived as – He would never say that, and he always says it. He's a trash talker, he's a hard-ass, and he takes very little shit from anybody. And he's not afraid to tell you that during the game. Now, after the games, he is kind, gentle, all those things. So those factors lead into it. And plus, it's Duke. Duke is that team in college basketball. They're going to be the team that if they ever go down, people are going to celebrate it because it's Duke and the perception, similar to Notre Dame, the perception. And I think as much as those schools, and there are others, do it better and cleaner than everyone else, I don't think it's possible for any college at the level that these schools are at with the money involved that they're all clean, and it may not be part of their doing. It could just be a booster that they don't even know about doing this to help them. I doubt that's the case, but I'm giving them the break here. The thing is, you've got to get rid of the one and done. you got to get it out of college basketball. People say, well, you don't have the one and done. College basketball is going to die. You already got guys going to the G League. Good. The one and done has hurt college basketball more than it's helped it. As much as every now and then you get a Zion Williamson or, you know, in our area, Carmelo Anthony, where you get a special one-year look at somebody, I think the player benefits much more than the college does in most cases. Getting rid of the one and done certainly helps clean up college basketball and makes it, in my opinion, a better game because teams that stay together longer play together better and that improves the quality of the play, even if the player isn't at the level that we would like to see. So get rid of the one and done. Clean up college basketball. And if you're a Duke fan, well, welcome to the crowd. Your school is accused now just like everybody else's school is. So there's that. Major League Baseball still hoping and trying to figure out ways to start the season. There was a report yesterday that ownership – has now approved a plan for this year and this was originally reported by trevor plouffe who is a former rochester red wing as a matter of fact and former major league player who's now trying his hand at doing what we're doing here podcasts and media of sorts he first reported that early june spring training would start around the fourth of july games would begin and Looks like that's part of the plan that Major League Baseball has set forth. But they've also got to find their their partner's plan to be acceptable. And their partner is the Major League Baseball Players Association. Here's where it gets interesting. Some of the things that ownership is changing for this year in their plan is, one, a five-round draft. Major League Baseball draft, and Mike Piazza's the famous person, 62nd-round draft pick. 62 rounds in your draft. It's it's crazy. We've all played fantasy football. Last couple of rounds of a fantasy football draft are like, uh, what kickers left? Is this defense? You know, it's like, just get me the hell out of here. I've been sitting here. Imagine 62 rounds. Oh my God, that's what baseball teams used to do. Now they've shortened it down to 40. But there's still a lot of guys in Major League Baseball who are drafted after the 15th round. Guys who fought through the system, worked their way up and got there. Well, here's the thing. Major League Baseball, if they have their way, the system is going to shrink. They already were looking at reducing minor league baseball by some 40 teams across the country. Why draft as many players if you don't have as many teams? This year, a five-round draft is much less than needed. But there are no minor league games. So, Major League Baseball is looking at this. Why draft somebody, pay them, when I've got nowhere to play them? I've got nowhere to develop them. So why do I need it? Now, Major League Baseball Players Association, these guys are minor leaguers. The union doesn't represent them. The union represents people that they will eventually be competing with. So there are a lot of guys that are going to get screwed out of an opportunity because of this and that's unfortunate this is one of those things that it won't affect anything now but it's going to affect things down the road so really don't like that five round draft thing but again people look at it and say well the major league draft doesn't matter anyway it absolutely matters as much as in every other sport however the impact is not nearly as immediate so therefore we don't see an immediate impact So it doesn't matter to us. It matters to Major League Baseball teams and the organizations. There's also talk of a universal DH in this shortened season, an 82-game season. Universal DH is something that the Players Association would actually like. The owners wouldn't because DH is a higher salary position, and National League owners don't want to have to pay that extra salary. So that, that will be part of it. Here's the real problem with the Universal DH now is that we don't have rosters built for that. In the National League, your last few guys on the roster are generally guys who can play multiple positions, do some things defensively. So when you get into a late-inning game, you need double switches, you've got some flexibility with your roster. In the American League, you find a guy who can hit. Because that's your DH. He's going to get four at-bats a day, get up there and swing it, and not even own a glove. It's funny because as a Mets fan, I I hate the DH. I despise it. I hope the DH never comes to the National League. That said, this Mets team has about four DHs on there: Robinson Cano, Ioannis Cespedes, J.D. Davis all make fantastic designated hitters. So I think it's a real... Benefit for some teams, but overall, it's not something they like. The games would be played in major league stadiums without fans. Go back to what I said about the NFL and the amount of money brought in about 45% to revenue is for from the fans and expenditures they go that way. Baseball, they don't have that huge national TV contract, so this is even bigger. They want to play in their home stadiums because the signage and all the advertising in stadium translates to TV and they can still get bang for their buck there. But the reality is they want to institute a salary cap. Here's our salary for this year. They want to change the CBA, the owners do. The players, and here's where it gets really tricky. You're going to have guys like Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, they're making $30, 40000000 million a year. They're not going to want to give money back this year. Not at all. They signed a contract. And Scott Boris, their agent, he certainly doesn't want to give that money back. So you got guys on the high end who are going to say, hell no. We're not giving that money back. No, it's not going to happen. But the guys at the low end are like, look, I don't have any income. I don't have any endorsements. If I could make $400,000 playing baseball this summer, let's go. So it's going to be a very interesting vote by the Players Association. And similar to the NFL CBA that was just ratified prior to all the madness from COVID-19, the lesser paid players saw a better deal. The higher paid players didn't like it. But there are more less paid players than high paid players. I have a feeling that Major League Baseball is going to accept, the Players associate. is going to accept some version of this proposal put forth by the owners simply because there are a lot of guys at the lower end we are going to see an opportunity for a payday that they're going to be able to make money this summer playing baseball, and that's going to be enough to get them over, especially when you look at expanded rosters, which there will be, and there's also, because there will be no minor leagues. That's the other part that came out. This proposal, there will be no minor leagues, but you'll have a bank of players in each team's facilities working out, staying healthy, that if there are injuries, which there will be, because there aren't guys working out, I'm sure, every day the way they should be, those players will be ready for call-up should the need be. So certainly keep an idea there. As much as I want baseball back, I don't want some bastardized version that we're going to look back on and say, man, remember that year? Yeah, I know everything caused it, but what a horrible year base. I, I don't want that. I'd rather have nothing similar to the NBA and NHL. I'm convinced that those leagues want to get back and finish their seasons at this point. Let it go, man. Just let it go. A couple local notes to finish up on. Uh, first one, Bob Matthews, who I first off, Bob is a good friend. He and I worked together for years at iHeartRadio, and we would talk on air, off air. I I love the man. He is a great man. He's a quirky individual, and I'm sure many of you who have met him maybe don't think he's a great man. Well, you don't know the man, and you don't understand what he has done and what he believes and how he has approached life. This is a guy who, here in Rochester, Nobody has met more to sports than Bob Matthews. I've always referred to him as the dean of sports here in Rochester, and he is that. Stepped away after doing a radio show on Wham for 35 years. He did sports radio in 1985. There wasn't sports radio in 1985. Bob's stepping away because of his own choice, and I think that's important to point out big media and a lot of big companies get a lot of grief because hey they they lay off people. What? I got laid off, yeah. This isn't the case with Bob Matthews. He stepped away on his own terms. When I moved to Rochester in 1986, Bob wrote for the Times Union and his column was basically Twitter. It was a Twitter feed in the Times Union, the afternoon paper. Every day. And I I loved it. It was great. And that's where I learned of him. Bob, in the early 90s, pushed for a new stadium, which became Frontier Field. I truly believe without Bob Matthews, Frontier Field does not get the funding and doesn't get built. And But it did. And we're all thankful here in Rochester that we have that. This is a guy who fought for his country in Vietnam. He has given coverage to our local sports teams for 30, 40 years, like nobody has done. He bleeds Rochester. He's now stepped away and in retirement. I'm happy for my friend. I'm also sad for all of us because the Rochester sports scene isn't the same without his voice. So, Bob, congratulations. Best of luck going forward. You've earned everything that's coming your way. Enjoy it. There's also one other quick thing I wanted to throw out there. I love it when our local kids do great. And we've got a couple kids now, uh, say a couple in the NBA. Of course, Thomas Bryant already in the NBA. Isaiah Stewart will be drafted whenever the draft happens this year in the first round. He'll be there. There's going to be others who end up there eventually. We've always had somewhat of a presence in the NHL, whether it be from guys like Brian and Stephen Gianta, there's also been Ryan Callahan and, and, and others. Shane Prince currently in the league. But yesterday, Jack Dugan, kid who played at Providence for the last two years, signed a deal to turn pro. He's playing with the Vegas Golden Knights. And Jack is somebody I've gotten to know. I know his family and a great kid and a fierce competitor. Drafted fifth round by Vegas a couple of years ago went to the Northwood school, played in the u s h l in Chicago, dominated all those levels and this year well, his freshman year at Providence was part of the key reason why they went to the championship game of the Frozen Four and this year he led the nation in scoring. The young man has excelled at every level he's somebody who's surpassed expectations at every level. I'm excited to see how he does when he goes to Vegas, and you know it's it's funny too because There was another kid drafted the same year, David Ferentz, is a BU kid. He's a Nashville product. Nashville has the rights to him. Ference is going back to BU for his junior year. And he and Dugan are very much on the same path. I think it's great for local sports that we've got these young men making these great strides. And I'm just excited to see... How Jack does the AHL team that the Knights just purchased moving out to the Vegas area. So he'll be in Vegas. And I, if, if I'm a betting man, I bet on Jack Dugan being in the NHL before too long. So I can't wait to watch another local kid doing great things. Well, that's another week of falking around. Enjoy the last dance. We'll wrap it up for you next week. Remember to spread the word, hit me up on Twitter at Carl Falk 2. Anything you want me to hit on, I'd be happy to do so and for long, I feel it. We're going to be in studio and we're going to have guests and we're going to continue to grow the podcast. Thanks for thanks for listening everybody. Have a great week.